Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers to each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the serious to the silly. Let's see who's with us tonight. Hi, everybody. Eric Perry, a clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Hey, everyone. Jen Cook. Associate Professor, University of Texas at San Antonio. Hey, y'all. Mitch Conrad, graduate student at Cleveland State University. Hi, everybody. Elliot Ingersoll, Professor of Counseling at Cleveland State and host of Applied Topic. Eric, you've got the first question. All right, let's get into it. So what is counselor education missing that we need to see reflected in mental health treatment? This is a hard question for me because I I can find all kinds of holes. I can find all kinds of things that I think that we should be teaching more of, integrating more. So for example, like trauma, I think that should be integrated more, um, more updated theories um, as opposed to just the old school counseling theory so that conceptualization and treatment planning can be expanded from where it is now. Um, But at the same time, you know, at some point, I think we have to really rely on the clinical training that occurs both on site during practicum and internship and what goes on during that two to four thousand hours of training that folks are doing post-graduation. And hopefully they're going to continue to learn and grow and get that um, additional information that's so critical and so important during that training period. While also, I mean, this is always the big hope that our graduates are taking their continuing education seriously and seeking out what the emerging trends are, what the things are that are impacting clients most deeply in their specific location uh, related to, you know, geography, barriers to treatment, resources, all of those types of things and taking that and running it. So if I'm going to choose one thing is that I think that we need to strengthen our students' ability to resource. So in terms of getting what they need um, from the community, continuing education, and really making them hungry to continue that pursuit, because I'm not sure that we always do the best job with that, because their education with us lasts just, you know, 60 small, short credits, and we really need them to be lifelong learners. Yeah, this is a, this is definitely a challenging question. Um, You know, Jen, you know, talking about trauma was was sort of the first uh, thing that that I thought about. Um, the more that I've been in my graduate program, the more that I've been seeing that seep into um, kind of people's people's lives and what they're going through. And so that's something that I'm really focused on before my internship and practicum to to learn more about that. One of the other things that that I was thinking about, I think our program at Cleveland State does a pretty good job of prioritizing self-care and kind of constantly talking about the idea of self-care. Self-care at, you know, at a certain point is something that uh, is, you know, for many people is kind of a privilege in a way, like people have very busy lives, clients, you know, sometimes are, you know, sometimes like clients are single mothers and, uh, you know, or uh, graduate students are like single mothers or single parents who don't have the ability to really focus on self-care. So from my understanding, the bur- the amount of burnout and the turnover in this job is enormous. And it's still like a big concern for, for me, certainly. So I think ways to uh, 
implement that both into a program and then moving on to kind of share that with clients in a in a way that's productive would be interesting to me. The first thing that I thought of when I read the question was um, what we need in mental health treatment is not represented because we don't have it. Uh, and I was thinking of etiologies for any. Give me an etiology for one. Mother trucking DSM or ICD disorder, but we're not there. And so in lieu of that, what I think Counselor Red is missing and needs to do more of is cross-disciplinary work. I've been in counseling 40 years. We must have hit young adulthood by now. We're not still in our adolescence as a profession. So I'd say we should be networking with other non-medical mental health professionals to try to figure out, you know, how can we move, uh, I don't know, can we move together toward things that are really needed? Probably not, but it's a pipe dream of mine. Um, I, I thought about this uh, and got very specific. And I think what we don't, we need to be teaching them um, is about microdosing and supplemental psychoactive use with clients. I know Mitch uh, talked about this in a, a previous podcast. I know our professional education, Counselor Education Association, turned down an opportunity to host an interest network in part because of the stigma associated with it. But I think also they felt it should be addressed by uh, practicing counselors and not necessarily students, which I thought was insane. So uh, I've started teaching about it in psychopathology a couple of semesters ago when we go through treatment regimes, and it's just of great interest to students. And, you know, finding good research on it or even just broaching the topic to talk about it creates a whole series of questions from students and ethical concerns. But it's a reality, you know, just if you're following popular media, people are using it and our students aren't prepared to talk about it. And I like to talk about things that I think are not necessarily counseling sanctioned just to kind of get people to think about them. And uh, so it probably wouldn't fit into anybody else's syllabus. Um, so I'm, I'm going to fit it into mine. I love that you said that, Marty. We, we do teach it in our Psycho Farm course. And if anyone's interested, I am now running that network, which is still trying to get some sort of uh, recognition. Uh, so if you're on the list, uh, I'll be reaching out to you in the next three weeks. And if you're not, you can contact me for more information. I'm going to be really general. Uh, whereas others were really specific. Um, I, the question kind of came out of this argument that I had. Well, spirited discussion, let's say. The friend of mine who said, you know, they had some interns coming in and, and is a director of one of the mental health centers here and said, you know, students just aren't pre prepared for the reality of what counseling is. And I said, okay, can you expand on that, right? Give me some idea of, of what that means. And they said, well, they come in here with unrealistic expectations and not really understanding the process. And I'm like, well, that's that's what internship and practicum is for, right? Also, the conversation is this is the practice of counseling. And I and I think sometimes we get away from that. Like, you know, and and there's this whole system that operates and churns in this very kind of concrete way, you know, managed care and all of those things that are looking for these deliverables and smart goals and, and whatever, all of that is well and good, but it makes us steer away from the idea that this is a practice of counseling, right? That, that there, there's a limitation to what we can prepare them for. And that experience comes in in practical internships. So Jen, when you said that, um, you know, 
I had this like visceral reaction to it because I, I think that has to be the case. We we have to also let students know that there shouldn't be an expectation that you walk into this with the realities of it in hand. You know, it is a practice. It is something that you learn and grow into. Um, and, and that just has to be the case. That's how we develop as, as clinicians. So I think we have to, we have to balance that more uh, as we continue to grow as a profession and really you know, push that piece, that practice piece, especially when we're we're putting students out in the community to start work. Okay. What is the first board game you ever remember playing? All right. Let me tell you about Candyland. This game is unethical, unfun, and obnoxious. I am so tired of Lord Licorice's smug face at this point in my life after playing with my nieces and nephews. I, I'm done. I'm done with these board games. Like Candyland, shoots and ladders, anything where I like either like roll a dice or have to like move backwards in the game is is just I, I'm not about this at this point. Like I, I love some of the characters. Like I'm thinking of like uh like Plumpy, like the green guy with like the berries. Everybody remembers Plumpy. Those characters are really good, but then there's a couple like uh that I just never jived with and it, it was always Lord Licorice. I couldn't stand him. It was it always got me and it's just I, I'm I can't talk about this anymore. I can't do it. <laughs> well, you got my game there too. Uh yeah, Candyland. And uh yeah, the whole Lord Licorice thing had a sort of uh BDSM feel to me about it. It was intuitive, but I kind of knew something was up that I wasn't catching into. Anyway, so yeah, that was I I think you it's the way you approached that game. When I was going through uh, grad school, I had a friend called Andy who had similar pharmacological preferences and proclivities as I did. And so we recreated the game as Andy Land, and then everyone was now a person Andy knew, and you know, we had to remember who was who and and, and then if someone forgot you'd lose points and go backwards. So I think um I think we we brought more of ourselves to it. Maybe that's the key to enjoying it. Make it your own. Oh man, this this is terrible because it's Candyland again. <laughs> However, I, I did I did some research on Candyland because you describe all these complicated characters, and I don't remember these complicated characters. I remember sitting on my back porch, enclosed porch, with my sister, and the board was up some way like an easel and. We were playing it, but I don't remember any characters. I just remember rolling the dice and picking a card and then deciding where I could move to. And I don't remember the move back stuff, but I, I went and looked this up. This was That game was developed in 1949 by Hasbro. And so I'm talking about probably the 1960 version of the game. And you can find retro boards for it. And and things like that through uh, through uh, eBay, people are selling it, but it was not as complicated as a game as as y'all describe it. I just found it incredibly boring. I do have a childhood memory of the other board game that I played, which was Monopoly. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody to play it with. Uh, my older siblings had ran off and done whatever they wanted to do, so I wound up playing Monopoly against my against myself. I'm getting choked up just talking about <laughs> it. So I'm not a big board game person. And I just feel bad for Marty. I'm just imagining you playing Monopoly by yourself. 
so, so I don't really remember what the first one was. Like the first vivid memory I have is from Sorry. If anybody's ever played Sorry, um, but you know, Mitch, I can I can identify because no one is sorry, right? That the, the whole thing is just outlandishly inaccurate, right? So you pull the Sorry card, you knock somebody back to start. You're not sorry. The whole thing is facetious, and people get really angry. Right. There's I, I remember like the emotional response that people would have, especially as you're starting to get around the board and then you get to, to like right before where you're safe. And then somebody pulls a sorry card and they're like, sorry, <laughs> I even remember the commercial. It's, it's just it was obnoxious. Sorry. No, you're not. I don't like that one. It's awful. They're lying to children. They are. They inspire <laughs> passive aggressive. I, you know, I'm almost sorry. I asked this question. Sorry, not sorry. Um, I remember sorry. I mean, my very first game, I have to say is Candyland, but all these characters, I don't know who the hell y'all talking about. Like, I mean, I remember, you know, I think there was some plum fairy or something, but that's about it. I grew out of Candyland real quick because I was an only child. And so like my parents had to play these games with me because we live rural too. So like, I didn't have any neighbor kids to be playing with when I was real little. So that game went away very quickly um, and got switched out for things like sorry and trouble and old maid and we played old maid until my mother figured out that um i was looking at the reflection in her glasses so when we'd get down to one card i would always pick the correct one and not the old maid so then she quit playing that game with me um the same with my father playing pickup sticks i remember one day i was probably about five years old and i had learned this at school um my dad was beating the crap out of me at pickup sticks and i told him he cheated he, he would never play pickup sticks with me ever again after that because <laughs> I was just mad that I didn't win. But those are some of the early games. I, I do remember Candyland being the first, but it didn't last very long because I got bored. My question is, what is your best strategy for increasing student participation in class? I'm working on this now. I don't have an answer. I don't know. This semester, I've done away with attendance and participation points in two out of three classes. And then the points are built into actual experiences like case studies, case quizzes, things they're doing together and applying the material. That attendance and participation, I've never been able to make sense out of. I was telling people last week, if I got someone who's socially phobic and they share three times, I'm I'm very pleased with them. But if I have an extrovert who doesn't share every class, I'm like, are you okay? I mean, you know, I've never sorted out how to, you know, how do you apply that anyway? So we'll see if that has an effect. I, there might be mutinies. There were mutinies when I tried to get rid of PowerPoint. So activities more than discussion, I think, has helped me. I have resorted to threats tactically on occasion. Those can be very resourceful if they're if they're used in the proper way. Uh, I, I use phone racks I got from Japan for iPhones, so everyone has a number, and they'll get three points extra credit on the final if they rack their phone every class. But that's also kind of a dodge to keep them engaged. So these are things I'm trying, and uh, we've been talking to people about some new uh, ideas this semester, which I'm also going to put into play, but that's what I've been doing. I'm not quite sure what, I don't know if I have a best yet. Tough question for me to try and answer. So I started thinking about things that have come up that I presume increases student participation. Particularly the courses I struggle with with participation are the ones that are generally heavily content courses. Uh, so psychopathology, as we were just talking about, they're all sitting in front of computers or laptops or some sort of digital device. So when a student asks a question that I don't know, or that I, that 
the class needs more information. I point to two students on their laptops and say, dig into this and find it for us now. And then I continue on and and do the class. So if they're playing on their Facebook page or Instagram, well, I guess Instagram or some other sort of page, um, at least it takes them off of there for a moment to have to look up the question of the class. Um, I really try to encourage questions. I think it's easier for me to encourage questions when I've got a controversial topic to talk about. They can learn about the different DSM diagnoses and they can read about the treatment that's involved. But in Psychopath, talking about serial killers, there are a lot of murderistas um, sitting in the classroom and they love talking about serial killers talking about as uh, microdosing and ketamine. They love these kind of contemporary things and they all get engaged in it. So I change the content in order to draw them in and, and then ha- use them in ways that they can find information to support uh, what people are talking about. Yeah. I, I have a lot of um, a lot of activities that involve students moving, getting up, doing things, you know, a lot easier in techniques and in group and and things that have more applicability. So I I come in to teach techniques with hula hoops, mouse traps, all kinds of things that that I carry along with me that have activities that involve them getting up and moving around. Um, I think that helps. I, I think there's something else that that I give too and and pretty freely when necessary along the lines of a threat, and that's uninterrupted eye contact. Right. So that can be a very, very forceful tool. And then we can have that conversation, too, about how eye contact works and, and is effective in the in the session. So, you know, if I'm waiting for a response, I can generally get one when I want one. I realize that's rather forceful, but it, it does help. I think the other side of this, too, is teaching online. I think there's a different bent to this that we need to take. And I've, I've you know, talked about this a little bit in previous shows, and that's that we need to leverage the technologies properly. If we're going to do things synchronously, if we're going to, you know, provide that kind of connection and content to keep them engaged, there's even more to distract them while they're at home at a distance than there is in the classroom. So we really have to get creative with this. And at the same time, understand that, that this is not a replacement. It's a separate methodology. It's a separate approach to teaching and to learning. So there's not always a one-to-one for how you engage a student when you're trying to teach material A online or on ground. So you have to be creative. You have to find those ways to engage. Um, And I think that comes down to properly leveraging the technology and really paying attention to what your resources are and what's going to be helpful. I really see this as a multi-prong attack. Um, I I can't go at it just one way, um, partly because my brain mo- works in multiple levels. So, you know, I start off with, I do have participation, but I call it preparation, participation, and attendance. Like it's all three together. Um, because for some students, making eye contact with me is participation. If I'm getting head nods from them, That is their participation because they're not going to be the ones throwing up their hands. But I see them writing notes and I see them with their book out looking things up that we're talking about, you know. So it's like I that is part of my shtick. Um, But also part of my shtick is helping to give them tools to participate with their preparation that they might not have thought of before. So 
instead of just mindlessly highlighting the book, like taking notes, asking questions of the authors, pretend you're having a conversation with the authors of your textbook. What would you want to ask them about? You know, so I said it from all directions. I, there could be a mutiny related to not using PowerPoint. I don't care because I am not sitting around prepping slides. I'm not throwing them up because guess what? Like, even if they were up there, I'd probably ignore them anyway. So I don't care if they don't like it. And I tell them that kind of from the jump of like, if you were hoping for PowerPoint, I'm sorry, you will not be getting that. If you would like to have PowerPoint for this session, I encourage you to open up a new PowerPoint document and just go ahead and type those notes with some bolding right in there and you can go on through, you know? So what you're, what I'm demonstrating here is that I use the skills that I have. Yeah. Sometimes it's probably a show, you know, you're thinking, wow, I just came, I just got two hours and 45 minutes of improv. And that is part of my personality. Part of my personality is to use humor, to draw people out, to do activities, because I I learn better when I'm active and I'm not passively just seeing the 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 screen flip by of another slide and another slide and then somebody's reading it to me like I hate those presentations which is ironic because we go to a, pub, a professional conference and that's what we all do we make these slides and we throw them up there you know I hate that and that's not my personality so I try to use what's been given to me in terms of my personality and gifts I Love, Eric, what you were saying about the eye contact. Um, I also throw in a little something from one of my faculty members uh, from my very first semester of my uh, master's program. I've mentioned uh, Dr. Marsha Wiggins before, but she had this tendency when you would start to speak, she would walk up to you. She'd walk right up to you and get real close, you know. And I mean, the first time it ever happened, I was like, whoa, yeah, you're in my space. But I've done that with students where they're speaking, especially in these large rooms with the large groups of students. You know, I'm teaching 25 this semester. They're in rows. I can't hear the back row. When they start to contribute, I got to come up to them. So I, I use my physicality. I use my ability to sense what's going on in the room. If they're starting to fade, like, I, okay, folks, time to mix it up. We're going to get in some small groups right now. I try to use the skills that I have, which are to be able to work on the fly and to be flexible and to model those behaviors for them because they're often thinking, you know, I've got to learn these things in a very strict way so that I know exactly what to say when a client says X. And we all know that's not reality. So I, you know, I just bring myself and I bring them in. And if I see somebody's lagging behind, I'm going to drag them with, you know, like I found out I had a first semester student and a second semester student in my addictions course. Everybody else is three, four, five semesters down the road in the room. I said, all right, I want y'all to see who are who your younger siblings are in the room. And I want y'all to surround them and bring them along with you. When you see that they don't have a group, pull them into your group, you know, because they don't have relationships yet. So just trying to make them connected to each other, connected to me. So then they in turn are connected to the material while giving them tools to figure the material out on their own, as well as using the class as a resource. So this is something I get really excited about. So sorry, I'm going on for like an hour about this, but I just sat in too many really boring ass classes that did not capture my attention that, you know, was death by PowerPoint. And I didn't get as much out of those and wasn't able to use the knowledge I needed to use that was part of those courses. So I, I try not to replicate um, the sins of the past, shall we say. Well, as someone who would love to teach someday, thanks everybody for your, your thoughtful answers. Um, 
I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I've been thinking of um, is the difference between someone, Dr. Ingersoll, you were alluding to this, who, um, you know, like student A, who's very active and interested to just jump in and, and give an answer or provide feedback or provide some sort of comment um, and is wholly interested in participating. And then you have, on the other hand, maybe student B, who for some reason is is either less interested or is less experienced with participating or is uh, uncomfortable for whatever reason. And so I'm trying to figure like figure out to the differences between um, how to get those two individuals involved. Something that's really been interesting to me is the idea of role playing in class and getting people outside of their comfort zones. Um, sometimes even to role play as you know, whether it be taking a different opinion, uh, and for instance, playing something like devil's advocate or acting in a different way or working within a group discussion setting where people are taking uh, different opinions on things, I think provides an opportunity to um, like, I just kind of like the idea of acting and incorporating that somehow into a classroom setting where people don't necessarily need to give their opinion and be done with it, but instead focus on exploring an idea, um, even if it means, for instance, taking the opposite position, uh, just in a, just in a, like a hypothetical way. So um, just something that I've been thinking about lately, but thanks everybody for your answers. My question, I'm going to break it a couple of ways here, actually. If you've, if you teach counseling theories, how do you teach it? And then if not, how might you imagine teaching it or how would you like it to be taught to you? Any any one of those is fine. But this is one of my classes I'm trying to reinvent and um, curious. I have never taught counseling theories. However, I am like a counseling theoryophile. I mean, I love counseling theories. I teach advanced theories and I teach that differently than what you might imagine an advanced theories class is. I go off the off the range and use turn it into more of a history course. So we look at some of the approaches that have been used over the years and some that are still being used. So things like autogenic training, biofeedback, equine-assisted therapy, which is contemporary and is is being used, um, Ericksonian therapy. It's the first time uh, most of the students have ever heard of Milton Erickson. Uh, fixed role therapy, holotrophic breath work, which is something that I've done in my past, metaphor therapy, Morita, Nikan, primal therapy, provocative therapy, psychomotor psychotherapy, another uh, area of my uh, experience, radical psychiatry, thought field, 24-hour therapy. These are things that were all part of our past that students don't hear about. Now, it raises some eyebrows of colleagues who are like, you shouldn't be teaching them that unethical stuff or that stuff that doesn't have outcome. But it really, an advanced theory course, gives us an opportunity to talk about the ethics. What, is, what do people get out of this? You know, What do they consider uh, being a success in, in, in therapy after doing these approaches? So that's how I teach theories. I, I teach a family therapy course where we go through a series of theories and we do the academic piece, we do other pieces with it. And then the second hour is me trying to embody the therapist 
using that approach, working with a family that the students have created. So it's a high level of engagement, a high level of risk. If I have a graduate student with me, I'll tag team out like pro wrestling and let them come in for a while, or we'll stop action and ask what's going on here or what's working or what's not. So um, that's my way of teaching theory. Yeah, I So I teach theories quite a bit. And I feel like there's, there's a couple sides to this. And, you know, Marty, I liked a lot of what you were saying. I think Part of it is ensuring they have what they need to pass the NCC so that, you know, or, you know, whatever assessment they need to pass. So here's your content, right? But I, I think that's a smaller portion of the course. I think that's where you start, right? Here's the theory. Here's the information you need to know. Here's how it's likely to pop up. It's the application of that theory and conceptualization that I think is the real skill development part here. It's meant to prop up your work. It's meant to guide your work and give you an evidence-based place to to move towards. So really focus on, you know, how do you bring this into session? How do you make it a thing? And, you know, family is is a good example. I love, so there's this activity we love to do in in family and talking about systems theory and, you know, use the metaphor of the temperature of the family and how each person regulates the temperature of that. And we talk about it in terms of like a thermostat. When things get hotter, somebody tries to cool it down. When things cool off, somebody will try and bring that temperature up and, you know, actually give them things, cards to hold of actions that might bring the temperature up or down and rolls. And then I have them move across the room toward each other and and kind of try and simulate what it would look like for family members in these roles to take these actions to regulate the temperature of the family. I think regardless of how you do that in terms of case studies or, you know, other conceptualization, you have to have a way to bring theories, you know, as as a resource for them to operate, to function in a role as a counselor. Cause I think that that underpinning is really important. And and I think, again, I said two sides, but maybe there's a third. The students love to come in and, and I know I've, I've heard this from supervisors and anybody who does hiring and they'll come in and say, I'm, I'm, I'm eclectic, right? Or I, as, as a clinician, you know, to their interview for practicum or, or even after, I'm eclectic. No, you're not, right? I am damn good at this, right? And I have no problem saying that because I, I can also tell you the hundred things I'm not. But I, you know, I really am only good at like one or two approaches that I sit in really well. And then when I run into something that those approaches and theories don't work for, I have to go learn. I have to go figure out how to help my clients. I have to figure out what it is I need to do or, you know, how I need to expand my knowledge. This, this, I'm an eclectic clinician or whatever term they decide to use for it. It's, it's a real put off. It's, it's, it's this, I think, faux pas that we need to talk about what's the professional implications of saying, you know, my primary theory of practice is Rogerian and REBT. No, it's not. Those things don't go together, right? You can't, you can't, they don't, that's, it's oil and water, right? So them understanding not just what it means um, and what those definitions are in the historical context, but how they bring it forward as a clinician and a professional. So sorry, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Well, I'll jump right on with you because I'm going to tell you, you sound like a damn fool when you say that you're eclectic. I mean, it just sounds like I'm just random out here. I'm just pulling anything, you know, like, it sounds so not intentional and it, and I, I forbid students from saying it. If you want to say that you're integrated, okay, that's cool. But when you say you're eclectic, I think that you're just like living in the back of a van, 
you know, jumping around the hills, singing the singing your songs and playing your guitars. And maybe I'll help a little someone along the way and share some love. Like, okay, fine, but that's not professional counseling. So I do not teach counseling theories. It's probably a good thing. However, I do have, I just got done teaching advanced theories a bunch of times or advanced skills a bunch of times in a row. And what I discovered was uh, most of the students who landed in that course, and it was right before they went on practicum, they didn't have any clue of how to apply the theories. So I think that if I were teaching the course, because this is what I end up teaching in advanced skills, is how to take on the theory when you after you get the nuts and bolts. So you kind of have to get that knowledge base. And then it's like, okay, and I think you can do that creatively with one of the 600 ways that I was tossing out a second ago. But then it's like, which of these theories represents how your brain works? Because when you go to conceptualize a client, if you're trying to use CBT and your brain does not think in a CBT way, that can't be your theory. Will there sometimes be instances in which you will have a good rationale to use a a CBT technique in the midst of a different conceptualization? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that is our integrated nature of like, and I always think about it as a, my picture of it as a tree. I did I used to have this activity in one of in the foundations of clinical mental health course where students had to come up with a visual representation of their theoretical orientation. And that was super powerful because that gave them the, the ability to think about like, well, what is my base? What is the secondary? And then, you know, thinking about a tertiary, if they, you know, I, I don't really think there's a tertiary to be completely honest, but sometimes they just couldn't narrow it down because they were too early in their process. Um, they could have that, but most of them realized they couldn't do it. I'd always give them multicultural and person-centered for free because they're foundations of the profession. You know, you've got to be culturally aware and competent and attentive. Um, and you've got to use, you know, the core conditions. That's a found that's foundational for any of the practices you're gonna have. But then they could go anywhere from there. And people came up with am- amazing pictures. Me, it was a tree, you know, like I'm very basic. I don't know why I couldn't get more creative than that, but it made a lot of sense to me. Um, but I think that that's really where I would take it in theories of like, when you start to think about how you're, how you think, that's where the conceptualization comes in. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes flex away from that, but by and large, you're not going to have a different theory for every single client because a different theory doesn't fit the way that you think every, for every single different client, because the whole like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna adjust my practice for every client. Well, yes, you are. But guess what? Your theoretical orientation will be consistent. So I think I'd like to see more of a thread of that. Um, kind of back to our very first question. I'd like to see more of that thread through our programs because I think then students can conceptualize a whole lot stronger uh what's happening with their clients, how they're understanding themselves and be able to really show up in an intentional way with their clients in terms of theory. So I've got a lot of uh thoughts about this as someone who just recently took the uh the theories course. Uh, but before I say that, I hope there's room up on that soapbox still because if I ever say I'm eclectic, take my graduate degree away. <laughs> That's all. Um so the question that I asked myself when I first went into the theories course was, how do I envision myself using or integrating this theory into who I might be as a counselor? Um, and I think that 
I got a chance to see like, oh gosh, this sounds really interesting from that theory. This sounds really interesting from that theory. I wish I would have had a chance to practice it more in class and operate from that kind of, okay, I'm going to act as if I am and act as if I'm using existentialism or act as if I'm coming from a feminist-based approach and looking at the differences between how I would interact with a client. And I think I was fortunate enough that my professor trusted me to do some role plays inside of class and I got an opportunity. We had a big theories class and it was difficult to kind of involve everybody. So I think having students, I think students may have been interested to have some one-on-one practice and and learn about a theory. And then for the latter half of class, like either work with a partner or work with a small group or work with a partner with an observer or two and kind of look at, okay, well, how, how am I, now that I'm actually using this theory, do I even like it? You know, because I think a lot of the theories that I looked at and say, oh, that was interesting. And then I may have tried it out with a friend or in a mock session later and just be like, you know, that was awful. Like, I, I, I'm not going to use that at all. Like, not interested at all. So I think the idea of, of practicing it from two different minds, uh, from like practicing theory A and then theory B with the same kind of uh, presenting concern, I think would get students to maybe recede their eclecticism just a little bit uh, and say, oh, I don't I don't actually like that theory. These are wonderful answers. I really appreciate that. You've, I've made a lot of notes. I have a lot to think about. But I am I'm I'm slowly um I'm slowly flipping the class so that and uh, you know what what Mitch what you said is 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 what that's how I've done it. I will do a short lecture land assuming they've done the reading. And then I'll do a demonstration. And so this is the only class I'm, I'm giving uh, participation points for. And it's for role play readiness. Everyone has to have multiple role plays that they feel they can inhabit emotionally. And uh, but but nothing raw, nothing that, you know, you, it might be therapeutic, but it's not therapy. You know, we keep going back to that. Uh, so the first role play is I'll, so I'll do a lecture land and then I'll do client centered as, as I would do it. And then I will have them break off into triads. One person practices the counselor role that, you know, and and if we have time, they can shift it around or we keep the triads for a second uh, class period. And then when we do the next theory, they stay in that the different person plays counselor. But I want them to try it on. And something we did about about 15 years ago, and we just got busy and crazy. And now we're bringing it back. I've got uh, Mitch is going to help us and two faculty. I always like to have, and I'm, I'm going to go for like two versions of this, but the first one is like three faculty members, whatever theory they want to counsel from, like Mitchell role play a client, and then each uh, three faculty members will embody the same uh, theory. Because what I'm trying to get people to understand, um, when, I tre- when I start the course, I don't even start with theory. I start with the common factors, Hubble, Duncan, Miller. Then I start with the idea of self as instrument. But then, of course, you've got to know yourself. And so, like, for me, client-centered, feminist, uh, existential, and then transpersonal, if there's occasion for it, those are the things that I'll do. Uh, but everyone's, there is a, there's a comfort in some, there's a temperamental comfort in some theories. People are going to have favorites. Ecle- eclectic is like saying, I know how to do everything, which is kind of crazy. And then, I mean, I really opened myself up to different theories. I remember going to these object relation workshops and I'm like, I'm so fucking bored. Oh my God. 
this is what smart people do with their spare time. I get it, but it is not for me. Never. I had a Lacanian psychoanalysis. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't he like, wasn't he a literature guy? I'm like, what do we care what Jacques Lacan (laughs) thinks? Some French guy who wrote, I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. Marty's got some editing to do, but good answers, everyone. Thank you. So my question is, what is something that started as a whim, but has turned into a tradition? I definitely have one for this. Um, so I, I, my parents live in Willoughby, Ohio. It's about an hour and a half drive from us. And, you know, during the holidays, we'll, we'll go up there and visit. And it's kind of the same car ride every time. So I got bored at one point and said, you know, I'm going to take the back roads. Right. I'm, I'm tired of taking the freeways. 271 and 480 are obnoxious. Like, let's let's find another way to do this. I got lost a little. No cell signal, GPS wasn't working that whole bit. And we come across this place that the kids now call the Holiday Barn. And it's a store in a red barn. And I couldn't tell you what it's called because we call it the Holiday Barn. Um, that's along our route to visit my parents. So Every time we go up there around the holidays, we stop there and we buy the same three things we bought the first time we visited. And it's this cheese in the shape of a Christmas tree. And it's this cracker seasoning that you make these, you know, like spicy saltines with and a a dip mix that everybody seems to really like. We buy those three things. We look at all the Christmas decorations and we we move on. Um, But it's just one of those things we came across. And now every time, it's around the holiday season and we pass it, we stop and we buy our three things. It's really neat. I think it's something that, uh, um, you know, I'll treasure for a long time. Well, my situation isn't exactly, it wasn't a whim. Um, but when I was probably, I'm going to say 11 or 12, um, my mom started working the six to two shift at a nursing home, working in the kitchen. And by this point in time, my dad had passed away. So single parent household. And so We needed to start figuring out Christmas Day because my mom was going to work at, you know, leaving the house at 530 in the morning to be able to get to work for six o'clock. So we started on Christmas Eve having her friends over. Sometimes some of my friends would be there, but having appetizers and cocktails and opening presents. And that became uh, what we needed to do functionally. But now, even to this day, so, you know, I'm 45 now, this is still what we do is that. We make a bunch of different appetizers, and I at this point, I make them all. It used to be kind of a shared thing, but I just love making things for bunches of people. And, you know, my mom's happy not to be standing in the kitchen anymore at her age. And so we make all these appetizers, and folks come over to the house. And interestingly enough, the trailer park that my mom lives in, um, it's a lot of seasonal residents, many of whom are from Canada and New England. They uh, come around in Christmas Carol and they get they get pretty uh, schnogged before they come out to Christmas Carol. So in the midst of it, um, of our opening gifts and having our appetizers, the carolers come by and we always bring them out a shot of something to to keep their party going as they're as they're going around the trailer park. But not so much a whim, but something that we continue to do to this day. And I love it. it takes the stress off of Christmas Day. That's for sure. I'll also throw a little christmas tradition into the into the mix we have in my family a very ugly santa claus a particularly ugly santa claus uh with weird beady eyes that look like he's just staring into your soul and and this santa claus 
my entire family decided this this is the one. This is of all the ones that we have, this is the ugliest Santa Claus. At least the creepiest Santa Claus. And so one day I put it in my this was uh, I've lost track of time. This is a very long time ago. Put it in my sister's uh, suitcase when she was visiting as she was leaving and flew back to uh, she flew back to I think it was California at the time. Found a Santa Claus. Said, what is this? Then decided to ship it back to me, which I thought was kind of against the unwritten rules of the game. And we have we like the amount of money and care that has gone into moving this Santa Claus. And, and it's just a small it can fit in the palm of your hand that has gone to shipping this creepy Santa Claus back and forth between two locations like you know like i'll turn on a ceiling fan after they visit i'll just come flying off the ceiling fan it's like oh okay that's where the santa claus was this time or oh it's behind the dryer that was like that was my magnum opus that's kind of i mean that's that's the best i've got like i think that was the just something that's uh continues to go around and i'm always looking for an uglier santa claus have not found one yet <laughs> that's a great one and i have a different santa claus story but it's a Santa Claus. And my sister, I love Halloween. That's like my big thing. My sister's was always uh, Christmas. And um, she had all, she's got, I think she might have had someone decorate her house. Maybe not. But it really looks that way. It's just really amazing. And I think she might start that in September. I know she starts the music then. But she had a um, Santa Claus, old Father Christmas, you know, more with the blue and the stars. And he had uh, a little thing you could put a candle in him. And Father Christmas was always over the kitchen uh, and about three years. And then one year we smell something burning and we look up. And I don't know what happened. The wax, something became very flammable. There were flames shooting out of this Santa Claus and the wall was catching. And my brother-in-law had a fire extinguisher and got it out. But she bequeathed that to me because she's like, you're probably the only home that could contain this damn thing. So here. And I was like, well, OK, there we go. So we have it and haven't burned down yet doing okay so far, but I do not feed it candles either. This question has immediate relevance for me because in our family, we do a thing called Bagel Church. It started, it evolved from the fact that we are all fallen Catholics and we've all chosen our different paths in order to deal with our spirituality. But it means if you're a fallen Catholic, basically your Sunday mornings are free. And uh, what we started doing before COVID was Aileen and I would go up to the bagel store in Hudson and sit outside during the summer and have bagels on a Sunday morning. Well, we invited the kids because both of our kids are adults and they have their own adult partners in town and they would come up for this bagel breakfast, which we named Bagel Church. And then COVID hit and that kind of slowed things down and the the bagel store you could buy, but you couldn't sit outside, et cetera, et cetera. And now I have my nephew and his wife who have moved to town. And it's I think it's every other Sunday, although I think people would like to have it every Sunday. We have Bagel Church, and it keeps expanding. So, you know, they uh, get a message on Friday, are we doing Bagel Church? And yes, and let's do it at my house. And today I made eggs benedict and a potato cheese muffin. Plus, I went up and got bagels because we hadn't had bagels. We hadn't had the original sacrament uh, for for many weeks. So 
we had bagels on top of that. And, and it's just a nice kind of family gathering that we started on a whim and uh, have called it Bagel Church. Um, so people know. And it's the congregation's open for people who want to join us on a Sunday morning. It's a, the church moves from, from location to location. Uh, but that's that's my little something that started on a whim and has kind of turned into a tradition. Final shot question. What's your go-to excuse for not showing up? Kids, 100%. I usually just tell the truth. Um, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it. <laughs> I I mean, I usually have to have excuses for being late because I'm always late. Um, but if I'm not coming, I'm just telling you I'm not available. I have one that everyone can relate to. Sleep. I just say, uh, that's not today, eh? Oh, that's a tricky one. Mine is, uh, I'm under the weather. That that way I can still, you know, I'm not trying to put off that I have something else to do. I'm just not feeling good. Um, so that's, maybe our listeners have their own go-to excuse. And maybe you want to share them with us or think about it. Thanks for the firing squad, Eric, Jen, Elliot, and Mitch. Look for some of these characters on their podcast on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Make sure and check out the Tech Savvy Professor podcast hosted by Eric and myself. Our theme music is from Anaja Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.